Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? You tried to How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? Our Feathered Friends by Philip MacDonald. The hot, hard August sunshine poured its pale and glazing gold over the countryside. At the crest of the hill, which overlooked a county and a half, the tiny motor car, drawn up to the side of the dusty road, which wound up the hill like a white ribband, looked not so much mechanical as insectile. It looked like a Brobdignagian bee, which, wings folded, has settled for a moment sleepy basking in the fierce sunshine. Beside the car, seeming almost ludicrously out of proportion with it, stood a man and a woman. The sum of their ages could not have exceeded forty-five. The dress of the girl, which was silken and slight, would not at all events upon her charming body have done aught save grace a car as large and costly as this one was minute and cheap. But the clothes of the boy, despite his youth and erect comeliness, was somehow eloquent of Norwood, the careful and not unintelligent clerkliness pursued in the city of London and a pseudo-charitable arrangement whereby the bee-like motor-car should be purchased for many pounds more than its actual worth in small but almost eternal slices. The girl was hatless, and her clipped golden pole glittered in the sun-rays. She looked and was cool despite the great heat of the afternoon. The boy in his tweed jacket, thick flannel trousers and overtight collar, at whose front blazed a tie which hoped to look like that of some famous school or college, was hot, and very hot. He pulled his hat from his dark head and mopped at his brow with a vivid handkerchief. Core, he said, hot enough for you, Viv? She wriggled slim, half-covered shoulders. It's a treat, she said. She gazed about her with wide blue eyes. She looked down and round at the county and a half. Where's this, Jack? The boy continued to puff and mop, he said. Blessed if I know. I lost me bearings after that big village place. What was it? Grain or some such, said the girl absently. Her gaze was now directed down the hillside to her right, where the emerald roof of a dense wood shone through the sun's gold. There was no breath of wind even right up upon this hill, and the green of the leaves showed smooth and unbroken. The boy put on his hat again. Better be going on, I suppose. You've had that leg stretch you were wanting. Oh, not yet, Jack. Don't let's yet. She put the fingers of her left hand upon his sleeve. On the third of these fingers there sparkled a ring of doubtful brilliance. Don't let's go on yet, Jack, she said. She looked up into his face. Her lips pouted in a way which was not the least of reasons for the flashing ring. He slid an arm about the slim shoulders. He bent his head and kissed thoroughly the red mouth. Just as you like, Vi. But what do you want to do? He looked about him with curling lip. Sit round up here on this dusty grass and frizzle. Silly, she said, pulling herself away from him. She pointed down to the green roof. I want to go down there, into that wood, just to see what it's like. Haven't been in a real wood since the summer holidays before last when Effie and I went to Hastings. Come on, but it's lovely and cool down there. This last sentence floated up to him 
for already she was off the narrow road and beginning a slipping descent of the short rough grass of the hillside's first twenty feet. He went sliding and stumbling after her, but he could not catch up with the light, fragile little figure in its absurdly enchanting wisp of blue silk. The soles of his thick shoes were of leather, and growing polished by the brushing of the close arid grass, were treacherous. Forty feet down, on the suddenly jutting and only gently sloping plateau where the wood began, he did come up with her. He ended a stumbling, sliding rush with an imperfect and involuntary somersault, which landed him a sprawl at her feet. He sat up shouting with laughter. With a shock of surprise greater than any of his short life, he felt a little foot kick sharply, nearly savagely at his arm, and heard a tensely whispered, Shh! He scrambled to his feet to see that she was standing facing the trees, her shining golden head thrust forward, her whole body tense as that of a sprinter waiting for the pistol's crack. As wonderingly he shuffled to take his stand at her shoulder, she said, Listen, birds, do you hear the like? Her tone was a hushed yet clear whisper, like none he had ever heard her use before. He said nothing. He stood scowling sulkily down at the grass beneath his feet and rubbing the spot where her shoe had met his arm. It seemed to him an hour before she turned, but turn at last she did. He still had his hand at the kicked arm, for all the world as if it were really causing him pain. From beneath his brows he watched her covertly. He saw the odd, rapt look leave the small face once more its pertly pretty self, saw the blue eyes suddenly widen with memory of what she had done. And then soft, warm arms came about his neck, and by their pressure pulled down his head, so that, close pressed against him, and standing upon tiptoe, she might smother his face with the kisses of contrition. He said, in answer to the pleas for forgiveness with which the caresses were interspersed, Never known you do a thing like that before, Vi? No, she said, and you never will again. Really, Jack, darling, it, it, a cloud came over her blue eyes. It, I don't rightly know what came over me. I was listening to the birds. I never heard the like, and I never heard you till you laughed. And I don't know what it was, but it seemed as if I just had to go on hearing what the birds were, as if it was, was wrong to listen to anything else. Oh, I don't know. The small face was troubled and the eyes desperate with the realisation of explanation's impossibility. But the mouth pouted, the boy kissed it. He laughed and said, Funny kid, you. He drew her arm through the crook of his and began to walk towards the first ranks of the trees. He put up his free hand and felt tenderly at the back of his neck. He said, Shan't be sorry for some shade. Neck's getting all sore. They walked on, finding that the trees were strangely farther away than they had seemed. They did not speak, but every now and then the slim, naked arm would squeeze the thick, clothed arm and have its pressure returned. They had only some ten paces to go to reach the fringe of the wood, when the girl halted. He turned his head to look down at her, and found that once more she was tense in every muscle, and thrusting the golden head forward as if the better to hear. He frowned, then smiled, then again bent his brows. He sensed that there was somewhere an oddness which he knew he would never understand, a feeling abhorrent to him, 
as indeed to most men, he found that he too was straining to listen. He supposed it must be birds that he was listening for, and quite suddenly he laughed, for he had realised that he was listening for something which had been for the last few moments so incessantly in his ears that he had forgotten he was hearing it. He explained this to the girl. She seemed to listen to him with only half an ear, and for a moment he came near to losing his temper, but only for a moment. He was a good-natured boy, with sensitive instincts serving him well in place of realised tact. He felt a little tugging at his arm, and fell into step with her as she began to go forward again. He went on with his theme, ignoring her patently half-hearted attention. Like at a dance, he said, you know, Vi, you never hear the noise of the people's feet on the floor unless you happen to listen for it. And when you do listen for it and hear that sort of shishing, then you know you've been hearing it all the time, see? That's what we were doing about the birds. He became suddenly conscious that in order to make himself clearly heard above the chattering, twittering flood of birdsong, he was speaking in a tone at least twice as loud as a normal. He said, Coo, you're right, Vi. I never heard anything like it. They were passing now through the ranks of the outer line of trees. To the boy, a little worried by the strangeness of his adored, and more than a little discomforted by the truly abnormal heat of the sun, it seemed that he passed from an inferno to a paradise at one step. No more did the sun beat implacably down upon the world. In here, under the roof of green, which no ray pierced but only a gentle, pervading, filtered softness of light, there was a cool peacefulness which seemed to bathe him instantly in a placid bath of contentment. But the girl shivered a little. She said, Oh, it's almost cold in here. He didn't catch the words. The chirping and caroling which was going on all about and above them seemed to catch up and absorb the sound of her voice. Drat the birds, he said, would you say? He saw her lips move, but though he bent her head, did not catch a sound. There had come from immediately above their heads the furious squeaks and flutterings of a bird quarrel. Drat the birds, he said again. They were quite deep in the wood now. Looking round, he could not see at all the sun-drenched grass plateau from which they had come. He felt a tugging at his arm. The girl was pointing to a gently sloping bed of thick moss which was like a carpet spread at the foot of an old and twisted tree. They sauntered to this carpet and sat down upon it, the boy sprawling at his ease. The girl, very straight of back, with her hands clasped tightly about her raised knees. Had he been looking at her, rather than at the pipe he was filling, he would have seen again that craning forward of her head. He did not finish the filling of his pipe. The singing of the birds went on. It seemed to gather volume until the whole world was filled with its chaotic whistling. The boy found now that he had once consciously listened for it and to it that he could not again make his ears unconscious of the sound. The sound which, with its seemingly momentarily increased volume, was now so plucking at the nerves within his head, indeed over his whole body, that he felt he could not much longer endure it. He thrust pipe and pouch savagely back into his pocket and turned to say to the girl that the quicker they got away from this blinking twittering, the better he'd be pleased. But the words died on his lips. 
for even as he turned, he became aware of a diminution of the reedy babble. He saw, too, calmer now with the decrease of irritation that the girl was still in rapt attention. So he held his tongue. The singing of the birds grew less and less with each moment. He began to feel drowsy and once caught himself with a startled jerk from the edge of actual slumber. He peered sideways at his companion and saw that she still sat rigid. Not by the breadth of her hair had she altered her first attentive pose. He felt again for pipe and pouch. His fingers idle in the jacket pocket, he found himself listening again. Only this time he listened, because he wanted to listen. There was now but one bird who sang, and the boy was curiously conscious hearing those liquid notes alone and in the fullness of their uninterrupted and almost unbearable beauty, that the reason for his hatred of that full and somehow discordant chorus which a few moments ago had nearly driven him from the trees and their lovely shelter had been his inability to hear more than an isolated note or two of this song, whose existence then he had realised only subconsciously. The full, deep notes ceased their rapid and incredible trilling, cutting their sound off sharply, almost in the manner of an operatic singer. There was, then, only silence in the wood. It lasted for the town-bred boy and girl caught suddenly in this placid whirlpool of natural beauty, for moments which seemed strained and incalculable ages, and then into this pool of pregnant no-sound were dropped, one by one, six exquisite jewels of sound, each pause between these isolated loveliness as being of twice the duration of its predecessor. After the last of these notes, deep and varying and crystal pure, yet misty with unimaginable beauties, the silence fell again. A silence not pregnant, as the last with the vibrant foreshadowings of the magic to come, but a silence which had in it the utter and miserable quietness of endings and nothingness. The boy's arm went up and wrapped itself gently about slim, barely-covered shoulders. Two heads turned, and dark eyes looked into blue. The blue were abrim with unshed tears. She whispered, It was him I was listening to all the while. I could hear that all, all through the others. A tear brimmed over and rolled down the pale cheek. The arm about her shoulders tightened, and at last she relaxed. The little body grew limp and lay against his strength. You lie quiet, darling, he said. His voice trembled a little, and he spoke in the hushed voice of a man who knows himself in a holy or enchanted place. Then silence, silence which weighed and pressed upon a man's soul, silence which seemed a living deadness about them. From the boy's shoulder came a hushed small voice which endeavoured to conceal its shaking. It said, I, I felt all along we shouldn't shouldn't be here. We didn't ought to have come. Despite its quietness, there was something like panic in the voice. 
He spoke reassuring words to shake her from this queer, repressed hysteria. He said these words in a loud and virile tone, but this had only the effect of conveying to himself something of the odd disquiet which had possessed the girl. "'It's cold in here,' she whispered suddenly. Her body pressed itself against him. He laughed, an odd sound. He said hastily, "'Cold? You're talking out of the back of your neck, Vi?' "'It is,' she said but her voice was more natural now. We'd better be going along, hadn't we? He nodded. Think we had, he said. He stirred as if to get to his feet, but a small hand suddenly gripped his arm and her voice whispered, Look! Look! It was her own voice again, so that even while he started a little at her sudden clutch and the urgency of her tone, he felt a wave of relief and a sudden quietening of his own vague but discomfortable uneasiness. His gaze followed the line of her pointing finger. He saw, upon the carpeting of rotten twigs and brown, mouldering leaves, just at the point where this brown and the dark, cool grass of their moss bank met, a small bird. It stood upon its slender sticks of legs and gazed up at them, over the plump, bright-hued breast, with shining little eyes. Its head was cocked to one side. Do you know, said the girl's whisper, that's the first one we've seen. The boy pondered for a moment. Gosh, he said at last, so it is and all. They watched in silence. The bird hopped nearer. Isn't he sweet, Jack? Her whisper was a delighted chuckle. Talk about tame, said the boy softly. Cunning little beggar. Her elbow nudged his ribs, she said, her lips barely moving. Keep still. If we don't move. I believe he'll come right up to us. Almost on her words, the bird hopped nearer. Now he was actually upon the moss, and thus less than an inch from the toe of the girl's left shoe. His little pert head, which was of a shining green with a rather comically long beak of yellow, was still cocked to one side. His bright, small eyes still surveyed them with the unwinking stare of his kind. The girl's fascinated eyes were upon the small creature. She saw nothing else, not so the boy. There was a nudge, this time from his elbow. Look there, he whispered, pointing. And there? She took reluctantly enough her eyes from the small intruder by her foot. She gazed in the directions he had indicated. She gasped in wonder. She whispered. Why, they're all coming to see us. Everywhere between the boles of the close-growing trees were birds. Some stood singly, some in pairs, some in little clumps of four or more. Some seemed, even to urbanise, patently of the same family as their first visitor, who still stood by her white shoe, staring up at the face of its owner. But there were many more families. There were very small birds, and birds of sparrow size, but unsparrow-like plumage, and birds which were a little bigger than this, and birds which were twice and three times the size. But one and all faced the carpet of moss and stared with their shining eyes at the two humans who lay upon it. This, said the boy, is the rummest star I ever... The girl's elbow nudged him to silence. He followed the nod of her head and, looking down, saw that the first visitor was now perched actually upon her instep, he seemed very much at his ease there, but he was no longer looking up at them with those bright little eyes, and his head was no longer cocked to the side. It was level, 
so that he appeared to be in contemplation of a silk-clad shin. Something, perhaps it was a little whispering, pattering rustle among the rotting leaves of the wood's carpet, took the boy's fascinated eyes from this strange sight. He lifted them to see a stranger, a sight perhaps more fascinating, but with by no means the same fascination. The birds were nearer, much, much nearer, and their line was solid now, an unbroken semicircle with bounding lines so wide flung that he felt rather than saw its extent. One little corner of his brain for an instant busied itself with wild essays at numerical computation, but reeled back defeated by the impossibility of the task. Even as he stared, his face pale now and his eyes wide with something like terror, that semicircle drew yet nearer, each unit of it taking four hops, and four hops only. Now, its line unmarred, it was close upon the edge of the moss. But was it only a semicircle? A dread doubt of this flashed into his mind. One horrified glance across his shoulder told him that semicircle it was not. Full circle it was. Birds, birds, birds. Was it possible that the world itself should hold such numbers of birds? Eyes, small, shining, myriad button points of glittering eyes, all fixed upon him, and God, upon her. In one wild glance he saw that as yet she had not seen. Still she was wrapped in silent ecstasy over her one bird, and this now sat upon the outspread palm of her hand. Close to her face she was holding this hand. Through the pall of silence he could feel those countless eyes upon him, little eyes, bright, glittering eyes. His breath came in shuddering gasps. He tried to get himself in hand, tried until the sweat ran off him with the intensity of his effort to master his fear. To some extent he succeeded. He would no longer sit idle while the circle, while the circle, the silence was again ruffled upon its surface by a rustling patter. It was one hop this time. It brought the semicircle fronting him so near that there were birds within an inch of his feet. He leapt up, he waved his arms and kicked out and uttered one shout which somehow cracked and was half strangled in his throat. Nothing happened. At the edge of the moss a small bird crushed by his kick lay in a soft small heap. Not one of the birds moved. Still their eyes were upon him. The girl sat like a statue in living stone. She had seen and terror held her. Her palm, the one bird still motionless upon it, still was outspread near her face. From high above them there dropped slowly into the black depths of the silence one note of a sweetness ineffable. It lingered upon the breathless air, dying slowly until it fused with the silence. And then the girl screamed. Suddenly and dreadfully the small green pole had darted forward, the yellow beak had struck and sunk. A scarlet runnel coursed down the tender cheek. Above the lingering echo of that scream there came another of those single notes from on high. The silence died then. There was a whirring which filled the air. That circle was no more.
there were two feathered mounds which screamed and ran and leapt and at last lay and was silent. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You How do they don't come back? That was The Birds by Philip MacDonald. So my plan now in these notes is to say something about him, to say something about this story, and to say something about how I came to be reading it for you. So that is very well organised, isn't it? So let's hope we stick to that. So Philip MacDonald was a British author and screenwriter best known for his detective and mystery novels and short stories. He was born on November 5th, 1900. That's bonfire night, in case you don't know what that is where we burn effigies of Guy Fawkes for trying to blow up King James or something in 16-something, um, because he was a Protestant and um, Guy Fawkes was Catholic. Anyway, that's got nothing to do with this story. It just happens to have happened on his birthday. So every every birthday he would have had fireworks, so that's nice. He was born in uh, November the 5th, 1900 in London, England, and died on December the 10th in 1918, Merton, Surrey. Now, the thing about this is, Merton is probably in London now, really, even though it's called Surrey. Um, MacDonald's first novel, The Rasp, or The Rasp, published in 1924, was a commercial and critical success and established his reputation as a writer of crime fiction. He went on to write many more novels and short stories, including the popular Anthony Gethrin series, featuring a detective of the same name. MacDonald's writing style is characterised by his skilful use of misdirection and surprise endings, which helped to make this story his stories popular with readers. His work has been compared to that of Agatha Christie, although he is less well known today. That's true, isn't it? I didn't really know about him much. In addition to his writing, MacDonald also worked as a screenwriter, adapting some of his own novels for film and working on adaptations of works by other writers, including Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express. Well, that's famous, isn't it? Because that was a really big hit and it's still on. Every now and again, um, the, the, I don't know what year it had been, but um, it was quite a while ago. This story actually was made into a, um, I think, a short film, um, and it aired it, of the um, Alfred Hitchcock Presents series for Late at Night by Alfred Hitchcock and Robert Arthur. And this is reviewed um, in 2014 by Lance Eaton, and Lance doesn't think much of it, to be fair. He does not think much of the story, um, he does make the interesting point, which I was going to come to, which I'd already thought of. Uh, we'd done Daphne du Maurier's The Birds, which, of course, Alfred Hitchcock uh, made into a film. But this story, so The Birds by Daphne du Maurier, much more famous than this story, possibly rightly so, uh, was um, uh, written, this story was written in 1931, whereas du Maurier didn't write hers till 1952. So possibly the influence was from MacDonald to du Maurier, you know. Um, also, MacDonald also published a story in 1931 called The Creed of Violence, which was um, included later in his collection, The Noose. And the story is it has a similar thing of birds acting in a disturbing and violent way, which is similar to The Pot of the Birds by Daphne du Maurier. But of course, in The Creed of Violence, a group of birds suddenly began attacking people in a small English village, causing chaos and panic. Stories told from the perspective of a local vicar who's struggling to come to terms with the events. Funnily enough, I read a Tanith Lee story um, about magpies not 
dissimilar to that idea. I'm going to just dig that one out. I thought it was in a different book, but when I found it, it was in the best horror of the year, um, 2019, edited by Ellen Datlow. You must know her collections. You should read them. If not, she has good ones. It's called Black and White Sky, and it's set in the um, in a rural English village, and it's it's in modern times, so it's set in sort of in the 21st century, and um, magpies start raining down, and the magpies are evil. So we have this idea, of course, in the birds, We've read the birds, so we know it's set in Cornwall. And then, of course, the um, the Pippi, what's her name, Tippi Hendren in the Arthur Hitch- Hitchcock one. So we've got this idea of birds becoming rather nasty. And this, as we see, this story here by Philip MacDonald predates those. So he could be uh, given the star prize for coming up with the idea. Now, funnily enough, I don't know if you know, but in the 1990s, I worked with the Royal Society for the Prevention of Birds in Wales, and uh, I'm pretty fond of birds. I don't have any, I'm not scared of them. There's, there is a, a funnily, interestingly um, thing about um, particularly women who have this, um, I'm not being sexist, I'm just saying it, all right? So uh, who have this fear of birds getting tangled in their hair or bats as well. So, and this is completely irrational, but I've seen, I've known um, a few, not loads, but a few women who were absolutely terrified of the idea of birds or bats being tangled in their hair so where this comes from i don't know but clearly some people um don't like birds and i do like birds so i'm not frightened of them i think i've just said it about 14 times so you know repeating oneself but okay see birds are dinosaurs aren't they birds are little tiny dinosaurs because we all thought the dinosaurs died out but in fact and we were like every single dinosaur died out apart from crocodiles and alligators are very similar to crocodiles and maybe big lizards and Komodo dragons. But you could come up with some more uh, Gila monsters. Now, I get, I get, I say Gila, that's Spanish with the H. Now, I know in American English it's pronounced with a H, Gila monster, but I can't help but do it Spanish, see? So Gila monster. I did, the, the monster bit I didn't have to do in a Spanish accent, so I apologise to anybody who's listening. I work with a couple of Spanish doctors. That is no excuse for that accent, though, Tony. No, I know. Okay. Right. Where were we? Yeah, birds. So birds being dinosaurs. So you can see maybe, and this is a stretch, absolutely, isn't it, that women are frightened of birds being tangled in their hair. People don't like birds because they're di- they remind them of dinosaurs. No, it that doesn't work. I don't think that works in evolutionary terms, because we'd all, the dinosaurs all died out before, but there were massive birds like ostriches and rears and emus, massive birds. I don't know if you've ever seen as a TikTok woman, and she's got a, a rear, I think, called Karen. She has this farm. She's very funny. And she has these, these she's getting attacked by this vicious bird, which goes for her. But luckily you can just grab its neck and um, stop it pecking you. If you're quick, I mean, she always is, so it always works out all right, unless she hasn't made any for a while and she's had a bits pecked off her. Anyway, so I don't know why people are frightened of birds, but just imagine like your dinosaurs back in the age of the dinosaurs. Basically, they were huge, terrifying chickens. You know, you these massive chickens, and you know how, uh, how hens. I, I actually prefer hen as a word because hen is its proper hahn in German, isn't it? That's the proper Germanic word. A chicken is a baby. And it's also, as I'm on this subject, people go out and we go, uh, would you like lamb, sir? You know, it's, made, it's, it's not, it's mutton, it's sheep meat. 
But we go oh, with lamb as if it makes it, as if the idea of eating a baby. My mother won't eat lamb. She's not vegetarian, but she, and she'll eat beef. She, she's not a big meat eater, but that isn't, that's only because she doesn't like it. But morally, she won't eat lamb because, as she says, I don't eat babies. And there's something in that, I think. But then again, it is there. Because if you're not going to eat something, you should go, well, I'm not, not going to eat it. You know, I'm not going to eat it. doesn't matter how old it is. What age do you eat them to? Well, you know, we'd eat them up to the age of, in, in, in we say lamb years convert, you know, like dog years, it's seven dog years for a human year. So if we do, I don't know what, what it would be, let's just say roughly six sheep years is one human year. So once it becomes under English law, I think it's British law as well. You're not, you're not, you're still a child till you're eighteen. So if you come out, so we have an equivalent of lamb years of eight. Let's just do that. So that would make two. That was easy. Three, really. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So anything under the age of three, you're not going to eat, and we'd have to do it with cow years as well for beef and pig years this is going to cause so many complaints this talk of meat and it has absolutely nothing to do with this story so i've just shot myself in the foot there i recently did the house in the brain um bulwer Lytton's story and there's a the dog dies in that and he loves his dog you know but uh but the, he he not enough to save its life and uh, that's mr uh, there is a guy who goes and dislikes all my stuff and i call him thumbs down bob and every single video I put on YouTube, I get one thumbs down as soon as it goes out. So it's like he, he's waiting for the notification. Could be a woman, but I think it's a man. He's waiting for a notification as soon as my video comes out, thumbs down. And But this one got seven thumbs down, which is usually I don't get that many thumbs down. So um, the other thing I get thumbs down for the shorts. <laughs> YouTube, if you, if you create videos on YouTube, I'm a long way from the story now, aren't I? Um, YouTube... Sends you this thing saying, "Hey, you want to make, you want to make a fortune, do shorts." And I'm like, oh, "Okay." And I think that this doesn't work for me. And I send them out. And you know, you may probably know, you may guess that the audience that listens to classic ghost stories is going to be older, is going to be naturally more conservative, and you know, necessarily with a, a political C, but uh, but you know, just like things as they were. And this idea of shorts because they're new is a board, and it's it's linked to things like TikTok. And Instagram Reels and TikTok, and, and that is seen by a certain proportion of the world as being rather infradignitatum, you know, rather infradig. Um, so beneath contempt, really. So I think by YouTube doing shorts, they have linked themselves with this rather um, vulgar short form video. We go to we go to YouTube to learn. We don't go to be entertained with cat videos and. Pictures of clowns falling off roofs and people having doing milkshake challenges. We're not interested in that. We're interested in erudite cultural things. That's why you're listening to me go on about milkshakes and TikTok and falling off roofs. Anyway, so that people don't like my shorts either. But I keep doing it every now and again. I give up. I go, oh, come on. You know, how much of a masochist am I? And, um, and then I keep doing it. So it must, must be a bit. This story was recommended by a listener. And it's so... Are you, I keep a spreadsheet of people who recommend stories and when they did them and things. And um, it's so long ago that this was recommended that this is pre-spreadsheet, so I don't know who did it. So if it's you, thank you. Um, I, I couldn't find a copy of it. 
So I went on to that thing called eBay. Now, eBay isn't what it was, is it? You know, as we're going on about how, how things change for the worse. Once upon a time, you could sell loads of stuff, mainly me, sold books, and then I bought them back again. Um, so that was a weird thing. Or, you know, um, somebody, yeah, you could buy people's old rubbish. And now it's just the same as Amazon or something. It's just people, it's just professional sellers selling stuff from China, from, what's it called? Wish or Alibaba and, oh. But anyway, and that's why it's gone down the hill. But I had to go and find a copy of the book with it in. I'm a bit of a sucker for anthologies of um, ghost stories anyway, so it's, I pretend I mind, but I don't really. So I got this book off eBay, and it's um, it's called Best Ghost Stories, chosen by Anne Riddler, and published by Faber. Faber and Faber, another very prestigious London publisher. They, they produced, uh, T.S. Produced? Published T.S. Eliot. So this one, this anthology, is old. It's got it's it's so old. It's got Latin numbers on. So it's got MCM XLVI. So that that's a second impression. So probably it's probably the, they call impressions when they don't make any edits to it. They just sell them. So it's, it went to fifth impression. So um, that was it sold pretty well. So it's nineteen MCM is nineteen um, nineteen. 10, X is 10, LV is 440, so it's 1951. Correct me if I'm wrong, but MCM XLVI is 1951. So this, this book comes from 1950. Well, it doesn't because it's the clearly the fifth impression. So that's MCLV. No, it's 42. Must be 30. Oh, I'm lost now. Somebody correct me anyway. I tell you what, there's an interesting plate in this, and this is this is a prize was given in 1963 for the subject inter, intermediate, and it was the Royal Army Medical Corps Apprentices School Prize 1963, and um, the motto of the Royal Army Medical Corps, which I didn't know, although funnily enough, I've worked with um, doctors who've been in the medical corps, so in arduis fidelis, so. That means in, in difficult times, faithful, uh, reliable, you know, faithful, yeah. Um, and the the offer was, it was Major Officer Commanding, and it was given to A.T.J. Dobson. What's A.T. stand for? Assistant Technician J. Dobson. W. somebody, Major Officer Commanding. So he won this. I hope he enjoyed it and read it. I hope it was something, and I'm saying it's a he, but um, it probably is. Um, There we go. What do I think of the story, then? So that's how I, I came to be reading it because it was it was recommended. I had to go and buy a copy on eBay. I was in my one of my favourite bookshops yesterday in Carlisle in the um, Cakes and Ale. No, it's Cakes and Ale's a cafe, and it's bookends, and it's a massive, massive secondhand bookshop. It's got a new and Lucy, the daughter, um, runs the um, the new one, the new bit. The other day, some ruffian child was being thrown out. Some fourteen-year-olds were running amok. So she was very stern and cross with them. She threw him out, right, rightly so as well. Anyway, um, so they had a big book of a hundred ghost stories by Louise Welsh. She didn't write them; she edited them, and it's a massive book. And it starts with the Greeks. So I'm very tempted to just start working my way through, um, um, right from Greek times until we get to modern times. But I, I can't help it, you know. It's it is a sickness. It is an addiction. I'm so, I'm self soothing by buying books. That's absolutely what I'm doing. Anyway, back to the story. 
<clears throat> I think if we hadn't heard of the birds, we possibly wouldn't have been expecting this. And it's it's a it's a supernatural story in that these things can't happen or don't happen. I don't have any evidence for this. So it's a, or a science fiction story, you might say, but it is it is a world where something happens that isn't real. It's probably dates from well dates from 1930. So we have this urban couple now. In the story, he was um, written he's because they would, used to do this. I said this previously how people write the you know Mark Twain and, and uh, Robert Louis Stevenson and they write the kind of the, the country uh, M R James they write the country folk in kind of pidgin creole english so uh, he was all called blimey i am and they've never been do you ever think that boy you know and he's written like that and she wrote the same and i thought i'm not gonna do her like that i thought i'm gonna make her and so a little story came in my head that she was some kind of um upper class girl that somehow this young clark with his car his tiny battered car had managed to um um, um uh, win is that the word? Attract, win. And she was not interested in his money. She loved him. She wasn't interested in his status or his money because he didn't have any. She was marrying or she was going up beneath her class. So it, the important thing was true love. And that was my little subtext that I read into it. I don't know if you picked that up. It was perhaps a little bit too subtle for, for that to come through. But that was my subtext. Anyway, I don't think you would have guessed what was going to happen if you hadn't seen the birds. So in that, I think it was refreshing. Don't get me wrong. I love a good gothic story in a gothic house where gothic things happen and gothic ghosts come. And we all know what's going to happen. Or it's very difficult to find a, a twist. Um, I, try, I do try when I write, but um, you know, there we are. So it was a nice change, a refreshing change to do this. I have been, just so as you're up to date, I've been puppy sitting again this morning. I've been puppy sitting two days in a row, puppy sitting tomorrow. And... Um, Shade has eight puppies and they are getting bigger and they're starting to fight and bark and wrestle with each other and they're very great fun. And, you know, they've got little personalities. There's one with a spot on his head that just cries all the time. There's one that... that Shade is a really soft-natured dog and she's one that looks is the image of, I think it's a boy, his mother, and he's really aggressive. He just growls all the time. At the other little puppies, and not at me, obviously. And so you can, and then there's a sleepy little black, black one with a little thing on its head. So the big question is, are we going to, are we going to buy a puppy? Now, Liam would probably give us one for, for what we've done looking after him. But Sheila says, you know, he's got a, it's cost him in puppy food and things, and it's going to cost him in inoculations or whatever they are, vaccinations. So we should really buy it. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, my plan is to travel the world. How am I going to do that with a puppy? And yet when I go and see them all, oh, they're so cute. And they, I put my hand and they all bundle around my hand and we mess around. And the, the poor old Shade, she goes and has a rest while I'm doing this and goes for sleep because it must be exhausting. Uh, <laughs> she's with them all the time. She needs a bit of respite. So I go. And then one time it was like they were all asleep and I went to see them. I couldn't help but stroke them. And they got all excited and we started having a little tiny wrestle. And she came and she kind of looked at me and she was like, I just got them settled, you know. And it reminded me when my kids were small and my wife would say to me, I've just got them settled and you've come and wound them up. And um, yeah, that's what that's what I do. And I say it like I'm proud of it, don't I? Um, but, you know, come on. 
there's more to life than just sleeping. So um, everybody needs a little wrestle every now and again. Anyway, on that that thing, I'm, I, I think I'm on a total outer space ramble today. I could just ramble on forever, talking about anything and nothing. Oh, I'll tell you what I was what was on my mind. I don't know what you think about this. You can put it in the comments if you want. Um, I started doing a thing called late night talk radio, and I it was I used to do legend of the month and i used to do custom so i'd look at these customs and legends and we'd look at them and talk about them and then i would tell a story as part of that and it, it was they were quite long they were about three hours long episodes and i put it out as a podcast not on youtube so it was available through podcasting apps and there was a um, not much response but i think the problem is i'm not massively patient and I don't think I waited long enough, and I think there would have been, I think people would have liked them, but whether I'll get around to doing that again, I don't know. My other channel, Haunted Places, where I take a ghost story, a so-called true ghost story, or a legend, but usually they the mix between the two, you know, they're so old that they become legendary, and I look at them, and I um, and we look at, we look at, try and find the people involved, try and find the places involved, and it's great fun. That is just, it's got a thousand odd subscribers now, so now... If all goes well, YouTube will pay me for that as well, so that's another string to my bar. I really enjoy doing that. It hasn't got the appeal of this channel, but um, if any of you fancy it, just if you look if you look on the YouTube thing and you go to the bottom, you'll see channels we like and Haunted Places is one of them, and that's mine. So t- take, a, take a look at it. It's um, I have a lot of fun doing it. It's becoming more and more similar to this, apart from the story is not a fictional one. Anyway, I wish you well. Um and think of me puppy sitting tomorrow and wrestling with the little fellas and ladies, little fellas and ladies. Yeah. Okay. Bye. I just listened to some of that again. And it turns out that I say, I call it the birds by Philip McDonald. It's not, it's our feathered friends by Philip McDonald. And I say also stupidly, I used to work for the Royal Society for, I say for the prevention of birds. That's not true at all. It's a Royal Society for the protection of birds. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You tried. How do the dead come back, Mother? I invite you to consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Patrons perform a really useful task for me in that they give me the wherewithal, the finance through their contributions to enable me to devote time to producing stories for you. So it's actually really helpful if you want to hear more stories. And um, there is a big, on Patreon, there is a big uh, backlog of stories, a big library of stories that you can access by becoming a patron. You can download them as well, which is more difficult on podcasts and on YouTube. But if you want to become a patron, you get the double whammy of supporting my work, which enables me to do more work. Imagine that. You pay me to do more, and I do more work for you and produce more stories for you, which is, and, and, you know, I appreciate it, so you get my love and gratitude. And also, you get access to a big backlog of stories and members-only stories. Every month I do at least one members-only story. So it's kind of a really good thing to do. And I would just like to invite you to consider becoming a Patreon. It's hard to say links, but this is www.patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, 
facebook.com forward slash Barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D. That's me. See you there.